entitled, Why Keep Jesus Waiting? Pictures our Lord Jesus Christ knocking, pleading, waiting for sinners to obey Him. And you think about it, it's a very emotional song and very stirring song because what it does, it depicts to us redemption and salvation being communicated to us in a way that even a child understands the impact of what is being said. The idea of someone is at your door, but you have to open it. Invitation songs are not just songs we sing because we need to fill in the time at the end of the hour. Invitation songs are songs that are chosen very carefully. That are chosen very wisely because they are intended to communicate a message and a message that needs to be admonished. And a message that we all need to hear. And so at the same time, you've got the, the care and the concern that the song leader must implement in choosing that song in a way to stir up everybody's heart that is in the room that evening. But at the same time, it is a song that is to be sung with fervency. A song that is to be sung with an earnestness by every person present, with fervency and zeal from hearts that are longing passionately for the salvation of all our souls. Those who have named the Lord as well as those who have not yet named the Lord. And so an invitation song is not to be chosen nor sung lightly. But you think about the song, Why Keep Jesus Waiting? The idea of Christ, the Son of God, standing at the door of every human heart and pleading with each heart, with each one of us, that we would open it to Him. That is such a powerful message. Such a powerful truth. It is so simple, but it's one that should basically cause us to tremble at the concept. That Jesus is at your heart, and He is at my heart every day. Pleading, knocking, waiting. As many of you have already perhaps have noticed at the top of that page in our songbook... The passage that this song derives its sentiment is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, presents to us the Son of Man, the Son of God, in all of this power and glory that is, that is depicted in chapter 1. And then he is standing there among uh, the churches of Asia uh, in, um, in the midst of the lampstand. And he says, Behold, I stand. I stand at the door and knock. This is John, by the Spirit, writing what Jesus is doing. He says, Behold, I stand. Behold, Jesus stands at the door and Jesus knocks. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. 
Jesus says, if you will open the door to me, if you'll hear me and open that door, he says, I will come in to you. And I will dine with you and you with me. As many of you already know, as good Bible students, in the context of Revelation chapter 3, these words are not being addressed to the world initially. But they're being actually addressed to God's people. And the idea here is the Lord Jesus Himself is seeking admittance. He is trying to get entrance into the life of an indifferent church from which he has become excluded. That's the context of this chapter. The idea of Jesus waiting and knocking and pleading and begging entrance into the heart of souls. And he's talking about Christians who become indifferent to him who in a sense have closed their heart to them, and they don't even know it. Jesus could have walked away. That could have been the choice that Jesus made. He could have decided, you know, I'm tired of putting up with the, these lukewarm, self-righteous brethren of mine. And so he could have just put it out of his mind. But no, that's not what our Lord does. That's not what our Savior does. Instead, he stood and he kept standing and standing, knocking day after day after day, inviting and trying to get them to open up to let him back in. And Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father himself, who is God in the flesh, who is Emmanuel, depicts to us, yes, God is a God who invites and ransoms sinners. He doesn't invite and ransom the righteous. He invites and ransoms sinners. And yes, we rightly admonish one another. I mean, we rightly encourage each other that each and every one is needs to be seeking God. And as Matthew 6, says, we need to seek God. We need to seek His kingdom. We need to seek His righteousness. And that needs to be a first priority. But the truth is, though, that Jehovah, the one true living God, the creator of this universe, through his gospel, to the message of his son, is the God who awakens us to seek him. Why? Because he seeks reconciliation with us. He seeks to save us. That's what God longs to do and achieve in the hearts of all of those who had been made in his image from the moment of creation. Just think about that. Think about the idea of Almighty God, the creator of our amazing universe, is the God who seeks. Yes, we are called to seek God. But also, our God, our Heavenly Father, is the God who seeks us. And that's one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. And how Christianity has brought into this sinful world the unique truth that Jehovah God, the one true living God, is the seeker of men. And that is distinctly different 
from all other world religions. That this God, the one God, seeks you. And then he seeks to, to reveal to us the desire that he wants to have fellowship. God seeks to have fellowship with you. And God seeks to have a relationship with you. God seeks to save you so you can be his adopted child. There is a great Jewish scholar who many years ago said that the one thing, so this is coming from a Jewish scholar, the one thing which no Jewish prophet or rabbi ever conceived of. He says the one thing that was not conceived of in the mind of man, particularly from the Jewish thinking, is the idea, is the conception of God actually going out in quest of sinful men. Men who were not seeking Him, but who were actually turned away from Him. And so this Jewish scholar said that idea of Jehovah being a God that seeks men, who has been on a quest seeking men to bring them back to himself in a reconciled, redeemed, justified relationship is very unique. But that's the truth. God's great quest is to redeem sinners. That's what God's quest is. And that quest is, begins to reveal to us in the garden. At the first sin. When he is pronouncing his judgments upon the devil and Adam and Eve. And, and it reveals to us the idea that one day the seed of woman is going to cross the head of Satan. And that has been God's quest from the beginning of time. To redeem sinners. And is not that the same message of John 3, 16? That well-known, well-quoted, yeah, well famous passage that is... Repeated time and again, time and again throughout the world, how God so loved the world that what did He do? He sacrificed His Son for what reason? To redeem us, to save us, so that we will not have to perish. So John 3.16 is just another passage that reveals to us the very purpose of God's quest, and that is saving you, saving me, saving sinners like us. In Luke 19, you're familiar with what it said in verse 10 when he says the Son of Man came to do what? What did the Son of Man come to do? Jesus tells us there. Well, the Son of Man came to seek. And the Son of Man came to save what? Or who, I should say? The lost. That's what he came to do. To save the lost. Why are they lost? Well, they're lost because of sin. And so they have to be ransomed. They have to be bought back. By a price that you and I cannot afford. And so like we read here in Luke 15. When you begin to read about the parables of Jesus here. And then you have particularly the lost sheep and then the lost coin. And in both of these parables. 
What does Jesus do? He amplifies the fact that salvation is for whom? Salvation is for the lost. Salvation is for the sinner. Salvation is for sinners. So as we continue our reading, let's read the one about the coin, where as that sentiment continues. And so we read already about the, the, the man that goes out to find the one lost sheep and how valuable that one soul is and what joy that brings to heaven when that occurs spiritually. When one sinner, and it's just one, Jesus, it's worth it. And so he illustrates that in a different way. When he says a woman, if she has ten silver coins, I think implying this is a poor woman. That's all she has is ten silver coins. And she loses one coin? Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds and when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And so Jesus again says, says in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We have a God, we have a Creator, we have a Father who seeks us. And sent his son to seek us. And you think about that message of the gospel. The idea to what extent, to what measures that God has gone to save us. But not just to save us. But to save all of the others. That he can save through us. God has freely and God has lovingly put forth all of this effort to do what? To find admittance. To find entrance into the hearts of men. But not just any men. But the hearts of sinful men. And so this idea of knocking on the hearts by the Lord through His Word is, is a sentiment, is an idea, is a concept that continues to be made by God through His instrumentation every day, night and day. God is love. God first loved us. God demonstrated His love first, long before we did. But sadly, this unceasing work of our Creator, this quest of providing and seeking the redemption of souls, sinners, Knocking on men's heart is so often unappreciated. And even sometimes ignored. Not just by the world at times, but sometimes even by us when we have strayed and we've fallen along the roadside and stumbled from the narrow path of Jesus. And so you think about that invitation. Why keep Jesus waiting? The sentiment that, it, that is drawn from Revelation chapter 3. To emphasize how He is there standing and waiting. And He is there knocking at your door. The door of your heart. And He is pleading. And He keeps on waiting. And knocking and pleading. Again and again and again. C. 
seeking entrance. That's what he is. He's just seeking admittance into a person's heart through their willingness to open it. The heart has to be opened by the one whose heart it belongs. This is a vision of love. This is a vision of truth that manifests the idea of this opportunity of the human will to, to choose, to choose what, what he wants for himself. And the fact that God does not force loving obedience. God is not going to force loving obedience. Does he compel us? Yes. The gospel is intended to be very compelling, to move us, to stir us, to shake us, to humble us. Yes. It is very compelling, but he does not force loving obedience. And so he waits. Please, not just on our hearts, but on hearts that are all around us. Look at the message of Revelation 3 and, and, and this hymn identifies God through His Son being the one who's doing the knocking. Do not be mistaken. It is God, it is Christ. That's the who who's seeking entrance. But the hearing of that voice and the opening of that door to him is descriptive of the very individual who must submissively accept him. Who must submissively open the door and receive him into his heart. To give heed to the message of Christ. Each person must decide that for himself. And so we must understand the message of Christ. We must understand the message of the gospel. And we must acknowledge this divine guest by making the appropriate and the proper changes in life that we're called to make. That to what is entailed, what's involved in opening our heart to Jesus. And letting Jesus to come in and die with us in the midst of our life. And there are a number of passages you could turn to, but just a couple to illustrate that. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 1, and then particularly in verse 3, when he says, okay, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. So Jesus has been knocking, he's been pleading, and he's waiting for us to open up, and he says, pay attention to what you have heard. Don't drift away from it. Why? Verse 3. Well, how will, we, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who were heard. And so there's a number of places you can turn throughout the gospel, throughout the New Testament, that clearly ties into this idea of our role of opening, our role of accepting, acknowledging, and responding Properly and correctly with the right action. Ephesians 5 is another passage that clearly calls us to do that. And we touched on this in our study this morning in Bible class. And Leland turned to this very passage. In Ephesians 5, for example, in verse 10, we are told, Learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. And do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The idea of hearing the voice of the one who's pleading and the idea of opening the door of the one who's, who's knocking is descriptive of the individual who has a heart that is receptive. Just as depicted in Acts 2. When those who were cut by the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? And they received the message gladly and responded in obedience by repenting of their sin and being baptized into Jesus Christ. The New Testament is very clear and very obvious in testifying the fact that there is human responsibility. There is human accountability. And, and that should not be surprising because... Throughout time, humanity has been raising their children to accept and carry personal responsibility. That they got to grow up and conduct themselves in this life in a responsible way. But the height of that, the height of this idea of responsibility and, and personal accountability is at the moment that Jesus seeks those children's hearts. To respond properly for themselves according to their abilities. That's the height of it. Oh yes, society lays down the groundwork that we're accountable to others and we're responsible to conduct ourselves in a, an acceptable way. But the greatest moment is that moment when Jesus comes knocking on that child that person's heart and they've got to decide what they will do with Jesus someone once said the door of the human heart is painted with no handle on the outside the door of the human heart is painted with no handle on the outside for it can, it can be opened only from within so Jesus knocks because you and I and every individual has to be the one who opens it. Someone else said, Every man is Lord of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates of it. But the mournful prerogative and privilege is refusing to open. But Christ does the knocking. And man, you and I must make the choice of whether to open. And we have that choice. Each one of us in this room and each one scattered through across this globe outside this room have the free will to make their choice of whether they will answer and open to Jesus or whether they will they were refuse it by hardening their heart to the love of the truth. An example of that that I think illustrates the idea of this constant pleading and knocking and yet being rejected is in Matthew 23. When Jesus talks about Jerusalem herself, the city of God's people, the place, the sacred place where God's house stood. And when Jesus said to this audience there of Jews, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often, now this is Jesus speaking, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. What's he saying? I waited. And I knocked. And I pleaded. But you never opened to me. You never opened to me. And so the time would come that the house of Jerusalem, the house of Israel of old, was left to become desolate. Those who reject the divine one will face a time when they will come begging themselves interests. But at that time, it will be too late. You know, Jesus brings that out, for example, in Luke 13. And Jesus brings, brings out the point that at that time, he's not going to open for us then. And so we are encouraged in verse 24 of Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow door. He said, work hard, be diligent to make sure you enter that narrow door, that narrow path that belongs to Jesus Christ. He said, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able he says, once the, house, once the head of the house gets up, and so he uses a parable here, he gets up and he shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door. And the Lord of the house, he's saying, Lord, open to us. And the Lord of the house will answer and say, I don't know you. I don't, you know, I don't know where you're from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And then he goes on to describe that place. But Jesus is knocking, not on our hearts, but Jesus is knocking on hearts all around you. And as he knocks, what he does, he offers to dine, or he offers to, to sup with us in spiritual communion and fellowship. And it's interesting, you think about this idea. He says, you know, open the door to me and I will come in and I will dine with you and you with me. And so this word, dine or sup, is taken from a Greek word, I'm told, that depicts the evening meal, that which, would have, which would have been the main meal uh, uh, in, in Jewish times. And it, it would be a time where you know, you know, that meal and that time together was a sharing of, of a very close confidence and close affection. It was a meal that would not be hurried. People would linger over it because it was at the close of the day. Work was done. And so you gathered around the table together and you lingered together sharing that meal. And that's what Christ is offering us and all those who will hear Him. He says, open up and I will come in and I will sit with you and I will dine. I will, I will share this time with you. I will linger in your presence. I will linger long in fellowship and intimate friendship with you. And I would suggest to you that's exactly what Jesus was implying over in Luke 19, verse 5, when he looks up in that tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. He says, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. 
He's implying, I am longing to dine with you, to linger in your presence. And that's what Christ offers us. And so we understand the beauty and the uniqueness of this idea of supping with Christ, dining with Christ, and how by faith, now, spiritually speaking, we have a foretaste of that. But it's simply a foretaste of the glory that is to be shared one day in heaven. Where we will be able to linger for eternity. Around the table of the Lord. But Jesus invites all men to feast with him. To feast with him in this kingly celebration. Where we receive blessings from above. Blessings that we begin to enjoy in life now. But ultimately blessings that will endure even into eternity. And so for, as we bring the lesson to a close, you consider Luke 14, another parable of Jesus. Luke 14. We begin there, he says, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they began making those excuses. The one, he bought land, and he wanted to check it out. Another had bought oxen, and he wanted to test them. And a third had married, and he wanted to spend time with his wife. And so the, the slave returns to report to this man about how all those who had been invited, that they had other things to do. And so he sends them out in verse 21. Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave does that. He says, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And Matthew said to the slave, Go out into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Jesus wants to dine with you. Jesus wants to dine with me. He wants to dine with all those who are willing to come. Who are willing to open up their heart to him to let Jesus in. What a beautiful concept that is. That our creator, our heavenly father, seeks you. He wants you with him in heaven. He wants you in fellowship with Him right now. And so through His Son and through the Gospel of Jesus Christ, He is pleading. God has has never stopped loving humanity. And God has never stopped searching throughout humanity through the truth of the Gospel to bring lost souls to Him, although He is still very much deeply pained by every soul that chooses prodigal living. And so Jesus continues to knock. He continues to plead. He continues to wait at the door of our hearts and to the hearts of all men. So what kind of heart will we have? Will we have a heart that will open and let him in? Or will we keep closing the door? To be availed of the blessing of Christ, we must open our hearts. Only you and only me can do that.
Jesus can cut your heart. But he won't open it for you. You have to open it. And so he's, he's asking us, and he's begging us to do that every day of our life. And so as we sing this song tonight again, I hope you will think about the imagery of Jesus not only knocking on the doors of men's hearts that are in the world, but also even the hearts of his brethren. And may we be stirred by the song and may we be renewed to open our hearts to him again more fully, more openly. But also may we sing with fervency as we think about others that need to be saved. They need their hearts opened to Jesus. If we can assist you in any way spiritually to put on Christ or to be restored to Christ, we invite you to encourage you. Please come now. We stand and sing the song. <laughs>